Uh, this morning, we are starting an eight-week series through the book of Nehemiah. I've mentioned this the last couple weeks. Uh, we are doing it simultaneously with, or concurrently. I don't know what the right word is, but with Joy Community Fellowship of Williamstown is going through the same exact series, same exact time. Uh, might throw a couple little surprises your way over the next eight weeks, uh, but I'm not going to tell you any more about that. Nehemiah actually dovetails nicely with the book of Acts. Uh, what happens? What happens when the Lord shows great mercy and powerfully acts on behalf of his needy people? And then they are called and empowered to carry out a mission for his name's sake. Will these people remain faithful in the face of trials? Will these people remain faithful in the face of the pool of this world? Nehemiah is a man who is zealous for God and zealous for His people. Zealous to see them doing well spiritually and physically. We're going to begin our journey through Nehemiah with a little background information. This morning's sermon is going to be a little different than the normal one because I want to give you some background prep. Did you get the primer I sent out to you this week? Did you all study it, memorize it? All right, good job. All right, just making sure. Uh, if you did not receive it and would like to receive it, let me know. I can email it to you this week. Um, Nehemiah was historically paired with the book of Ezra. Uh, in the Jewish scriptures, they were one book for a period of time. Uh, they, along with Esther, provide a historical account of the Jewish people after the Babylonian captivity. Interestingly also about Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, do you know that none of them are referenced in the New Testament? Not once. How about that? Uh, we could talk, we're going to talk more about that as we go a little bit. I'm going to throw it in there and a couple things. But uh, just to give you some background info, to bring us to where we are. In the year 587 B.C., the Babylonian Empire, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, overtook the nation of Israel. They destroyed the city of Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and desecrated. And the walls of the city were broken down. Babylon was the conquering nation, but the reality is their work was allowed and ordained by the sovereign hand of the Lord. His people Israel had been repeatedly and awfully unfaithful to Him. They had forsaken the covenant that they made with Him. And after the exit, the one they had made after the exodus, and as they entered the promised land, as they affirmed repeatedly throughout their history, they had disobeyed his commands. They had worshiped foreign gods. They had loved anything and anyone that met their fancy. They did not care for the commands of God or the covenant that they had made with him. He had given them many warnings, many threats. He had been so merciful not to punish them as they deserved. But Babylon became the instrument of his judgment. Israel was being punished for their sins. About 48 years later, after 587 B.C., so around like 540 or 539 B.C., Babylon itself was conquered by Persia. And the book of Ezra begins with the Lord stirring the heart of Cyrus, the Persian king, 
to send back a group of people from Israel to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so in the year 538 B.C., a group of 42,360 Jewish people goes back and begins to rebuild the temple under the supervision of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the high priest. After some starts and stops, the temple is largely completed around the year 520 to 515 B.C. So we're talking about 18 to 20 years later, the temple building is largely completed. The Passover is celebrated. It's an amazing thing to think about when you read through the book of Ezra. These people are going to celebrate the Passover. It's going to be the first time in a long, long time that the Jewish people celebrated the Passover. And so the Passover is is celebrated under the Persian king Darius. Do you know that name from anywhere else in the Bible? Darius? From the book of Daniel. The next event we see in the book of Ezra is around the year 458 B.C. So we're talking about another 60 years later. King Artaxerxes I commissioned Ezra and provided protection and resources. Uh, Ezra was a, a scribe, very skilled in the law of Moses, it says in the book of Ezra. He sends him back. Darius sends Ezra back with resources, with protection, to go back to Jerusalem and lead the people in worship. The law was read to the assembled nation of Israel. Their hearts were pierced for their their sinful ways, and they repented of their sin. Particularly, the sin that they were repenting of was that marrying those who worship foreign gods. A theme that we're going to see again in Nehemiah. And it's worth noting, because I just wanted, I think it's worth saying right here, I'll probably say it again later in Nehemiah. But, but a theme of the Old Testament in Ezra and Nehemiah is this, this devotion of the people of God, the Israelites, that their willingness to give themselves away to foreign gods, to, the, to, to marrying those who worship foreign gods. And, and some have taken these passages, like in Ezra and Nehemiah, and said, see here, uh, God condemns uh, inter, what we would call interracial marriage. And that's not it at all. That's not what he's talking about. All human beings are human beings, right? God's people are not condemned when they marry someone who does not share their skin color or their ethnic background. God's people are called to account when they unite their hearts to those who will lead them away from the worship of Him. Those who love other gods. That's the danger. All that brings us back to Nehemiah. The year is about 445 B.C. So now we're about 13 years after Ezra was sent back to Jerusalem. Ezra's stay in Jerusalem seems to have been temporary, as we're going to see later in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes I, a Jewish man who had achieved much in exile, not King Artaxerxes I, Nehemiah, a Jewish man who had achieved much in his exile, placed where he was by the sovereign hand of God for such a time as this. Sounds similar to another book of the Bible, right? Who? Who's that sound like? Esther. 
Esther, who would have been about 30 to 40 years before this, okay? So just getting your, trying to give you some timelines, right? Esther would have been about 30 to 40 years before the book of Nehemiah. And so we begin the book in the citadel of Susa, the winter residence of the kings of Persia, modern-day Iran, about 900 to 950 miles away from Jerusalem. Nehemiah received some troubling news about his people. This morning we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 1 with a reminder that the foundation piece for the book of Nehemiah and the work of Nehemiah is the power and mercy of God. Nothing good happens apart from His mighty work. Hearts are not stirred. Lives are not changed. Cities are not rebuilt apart from His grace and empowering. Nehemiah's zeal would be useless apart from the work of God. And so he starts by going to the one who can act, by the one who can empower. We are also reminded in this chapter that wayward people are in desperate need of someone to stand before God on their behalf. We need an intercessor we're going to read chapter 1 this morning and we're going to consider two things. The plight of Jerusalem and the reaction of Nehemiah. Very simple. The plight of Jerusalem and the reaction of Nehemiah. So let's read Nehemiah chapter 1. I should have told you this earlier, but if you have your Bibles, if you're looking at the Bible in front of you, it's on page 398. I would encourage you to follow along in your Bible or on your phone. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in, the Sus- in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. And its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night, For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. 
Now I was cupbearer to the king. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. That is your word, truth. By your Holy Spirit, would you work, give me words that are faithful to your word. By your Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts, strengthen us, challenge us, encourage us, and remind us of the hope that we have. Because of one, yes, we see here Nehemiah standing in the gap for Israel. And we are reminded that we have a merciful high priest who stands for us. We thank you for that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin with the plight of Jerusalem in verses 1 through 3. As we go through this quick series, I just want to, I want to say this right out of the gate. I, I plan to keep us pretty laser focused on the main things in each passage. I'm going to stick to the main stuff. I'm not going to spend much, if any, time on speculative or secondary matters. I want to keep us focused on what's most important. So like, I'll give you an example. I won't be doing this every week, but, but we might wonder in this passage, like, who is, what do we know about Hakaliah? The answer Nothing. Was Hanani one of Nehemiah's actual blood brothers, or was he a fellow Jew, or was he a fellow faithful Jew? Which one is it? I don't know. Did the men come to Nehemiah because they, they, wanted, they had some business that they wanted to attend to, or were they just happened to be visiting to check in on their kinsmen, and this happens? We don't know. Were the walls and gates of Jerusalem in disrepair for the last 140 years since the Babylonian captivity? Or had they been rebuilt and then torn down? I don't know. And I'm going to tell you why that one specifically, I don't know. Because I, I searched before months ago when we knew we were going to do Nehemiah. I then researched, like, what are the best commentaries on, on these books that we're about to do? And then I buy some of them so that we can study me and Ben are sharing resources. That's why I'm saying we. I'm not saying there's two of me. Uh, so we're studying. The two top resources on Nehemiah. The first one says, oh, definitely, definitely the walls had been rebuilt and they were torn down again. And the second one says, we have no reason to believe that the walls were ever rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity. So two people way smarter than me came to the conclusion, we don't know. All right, But what's important in this first part is that we're introduced to Nehemiah and we get to see a little bit of his heart right from the get-go. And we learn about the plight of Jerusalem. As Hanani and others from Judah come to Nehemiah, he wanted to know about those in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. He's checking in on the welfare of his kinsmen while they were a part of the Persian Empire, even all the way to Jerusalem, part of the Persian Empire at that time, uh, more directly and more closely, the, the people of Jerusalem had been under the supervision and the governance of actually the Samaritans not long before that, which it's going to be helpful for us in understanding. We're going to get to like, oh yeah, why do the, why do the Jewish people hate the Samaritans? That'll, that'll come up in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, but anyway... Uh, they, they had been under the supervision of the Samaritans, and, and he was checking in on them, checking in on their welfare. 
Notice that Nehemiah refers to those in Jerusalem, hopefully you still have your Bibles open, as those who had escaped and those who had survived the exile. Hanani refers to them as the remnant. And while many Jewish people had survived and even prospered in exile, there was still a great shame for those displaced from their homeland. Those who made it back to Israel were seen as escapees. They made it out. They made it back. Nehemiah was faithful where he was, but he was longing for his home. Home was on his heart. And it's quite possible, given the distance, right? We're talking 900 miles. Given the distance that possibly Nehemiah has never actually been in Israel. Never been to Jerusalem. And yet we see his heart is there. His heart for the people. His heart for the place. And this remnant is probably those who remained from, from those who went back, either under Zerubbabel and Jeshua or under with Ezra when he returns in the book of Ezra. So uh, that was you know, just 15 years ago, but the, the group that went back with Zerubbabel at this point would have been about 75 years ago. And the report that uh, Nehemiah gets is not good. The remnant is in trouble and in great shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. Trouble and shame. Those are the two words that are reported. Trouble and shame. There is shame. Because the former glory of the city of Jerusalem is no more. It has not fully been restored. Even when the temple was rebuilt, the accounting of the rebuilding of the temple, if you read that in Ezra, if you read the, the prophets Haggai or Zechariah who, who cover that period of time, there, there was a sadness in the rebuilding of the temple. There was a sadness because it wasn't as beautiful as the original. Little did they know, but the prophets would tell them, don't despise the day of small beginnings because the glory of this temple is going to surpass the glory of the first temple. And the reason why, it's not because Herod's going to make it look beautiful, but because Jesus himself will be in that temple and minister in that temple. But at this point, there's shame. We've rebuilt. It's not as pretty. We don't have any walls. And they know. They know. It looks this way because of our sin. Because of our rebellion. This is, this is punishment. This is judgment. Our ancestors rebelled against God. There is shame. This is a, the lack of walls in Jerusalem is a visible testimony that God had righteously judged them. Sin has caused shame from the time of the Garden of Eden. It's caused sadness and pain from the time of the Garden of Eden. Not every calamity we face in life, I want to make this clear, not every time we go through something hard can we say like, oh, you're going through this difficult thing because you did something wrong. Yes, sadness and sickness and pain and disease are the result of sin, big picture, but we can't say like, I got, 
I got this disease because I did this thing wrong when I was 20 years old. All results of sin. But here, it's directly, there's no question. These people are suffering the consequences of their sin. And there was trouble. There was shame, but there was also trouble. We're reminded in the news once again this week of how valuable it is for the nation of Israel to have what's called the Iron Dome. Are you familiar with this? The Iron Dome, it's their missile protection system. And this week they were protected from much rocket fire by the Iron Dome. This nation of Israel, going back to 445 B.C., their wall was their Iron Dome. That was their defense. The wall of Jerusalem was down. Larry preached a message last year on Proverbs 25-28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. No defense. No ability to defend himself from the attacks of the world. That was Jerusalem. Without walls equals defenseless, susceptible to attack. Jerusalem is a city bearing witness to the judgment of God and living in the fear that more pain is coming. So how does Nehemiah respond to this? That's what we'll look at the rest of our time. And I see three things in here. As I said earlier, sinful human beings have a great need for someone to intercede for them before God. We in our sinful state cannot stand before the holy God of the universe. We are not worthy and we are not able. In this book and specifically in this chapter, Nehemiah functions as a type of intercessor for the nation of Israel. And so the first thing we see here is that he's broken hearted. Do you see that in that passage? That he's broken hearted? Where do you see that? I'll take a drink real quick. Yeah. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. That's quite a striking statement. I sat down and wept and mourned for days. What would cause you to sit down and weep and mourn for days. As I, I, I was really thinking about that. Like that, there aren't many things that would do that for us, would it? Are there? There's a couple things that came to my mind. It sounded like the reaction of one who maybe who had received a terminal diagnosis from a doctor for themselves or for a loved one. Or somebody who had just found out about a, a sudden death in their family, or of a loved one. Nehemiah is responding in the same way, as if somebody had died. For, for something to, to like give us a parallel, you, you could read through, maybe this week, the book of Lamentations. In the book of Lamentations, you see the prophet Jeremiah's reaction to all that Babylon does to the nation of Israel. This is his, his reaction in real time to seeing the desolation of Jerusalem. 
the devastation. And so Nehemiah hears this news and he weeps and he mourns. There's real love. He has real love for his people and that place. Love for others means entering into their pain. Even feeling it ourselves. That's hard to do. We feel like I got enough to deal with on my own. I don't need to enter into anybody else's pain. Anybody else's trials. Not only in our blood families, but also in the body of Christ. We are to pursue fellowship in such a way that we feel deeply on behalf of others. The pain of Jerusalem was Nehemiah's pain as well. If you're trying to like isolate yourself from that type of relationship, I just would encourage you, examine yourself. Examine the calls of Scripture on our lives as a body. We are meant to enter into all aspects of life together. To bear all seasons of life together. To feel the hurts of one another. Nehemiah's response is like clearly one of somebody who had been thinking and praying a lot for the people in Jerusalem, right? It's not just like, oh, wow, oh, things are bad. He, he is invested in the care of Jerusalem. And so after that, we see that Nehemiah fasts and prays before God. The fasting that he did was probably from a combination of the sorrow that he felt. Just lack of a desire to eat. But also to express before the Lord that what he and Israel needed at this time was not food, but the mighty provision of God on their behalf. Fasting is a reminder that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Fasting reminds us that we are utterly dependent creatures. Fasting reminds us that this world as it stands is not our ultimate home and that we long for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And so Nehemiah fasts on behalf of his people. And then Nehemiah prays. The heart of this chapter is the prayer of Nehemiah. And it's a great example for us, first and foremost, by saying, I'd be a fool. Nehemiah hears this news, and, and oftentimes we, possibly, are like, I got to do something. I got to fix this. I got to make this happen. Before he goes about doing anything, and he's going to do a lot of things, before he goes about doing anything, he goes before the one who can act powerfully on his behalf and on Israel's behalf. We need to be reminded of that. We have no hope apart from Him working. Why are we having a VBS prayer meeting tomorrow night? Because we're going to do a ton of planning and prepping and all this stuff. But if the Lord doesn't build the house, those who build it labor in vain. And so we ask Him to do what only He can do. All the people we'd like to see come to Christ, apart from the mighty work of God, we're without hope. We could craft the finest arguments. 
We could have the greatest conversations. Apart from the mighty work of God, we are without hope. They are without hope. He must do it. So before Nehemiah goes to the king, he goes to the king of kings. So what do we see in the content of Nehemiah's prayer? Let's just walk through it. We see the name of God. Do you see that in both verses? Yeah, talking is hard. Uh, in both verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, he refers to him as what? God of heaven. And he does that again in verse 5, right? So God of heaven would have been a familiar term even for the Persians. It would have been a more common name name to refer to God. So it would have been something that they would have understood. But did you notice something sandwiched between the two God of heavens? Larry has taught us well, if you notice, the word LORD in all capitals. And so just in case there's any confusion, Persians, anybody who might hear or read or respond, I am praying to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the great I Am, the only true God. He makes it clear where his trust is and where his hope is and who he is praying to. He then refers to the character of God. He calls the Lord the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Great and awesome. So he is mighty to answer. He's able and powerful to work and act. Covenant keeping. I just want to say, one of the great attributes that we can rejoice in together is that our God is a covenant-keeping God. He does not forsake His promises or His people. He is a God of His Word. If He says it, He will do it. The basis of our assurance as Christians that we are right before God and will be with Him into eternity is because He said it and He will do it through faith in Christ. Steadfast love. He will not abandon His people. Even when they seem very worthy of abandonment. Nehemiah does something we see a lot in Scripture. He reminds God who He is. Does God need reminder of who He is? No is the correct answer to that. But it's a pattern we see in Scripture. And it's, it's the way that the one who is doing the praying is acknowledging the character of the one to whom he prays. And so he reminds the Lord and strengthens himself with the reminder that this is a God who is full of steadfast love. When you call out to God in prayer, remember who it is that you have an audience with. Nehemiah begs God to hear him. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you. Nehemiah is humble. He doesn't assume that God owes it to him to listen. A couple times in this prayer, he begs God, hear me, be attentive to my prayer. 
We're going to see in a minute that Nehemiah knows that his, even his own family has a share in the blame for this punishment. We see multiple times in this chapter that Nehemiah refers to himself as your servant. And he refers to Israel as your servants. Who are we that we should come before the king of the universe? Yet he bids his children come. Call out. Cry out. Nehemiah's prayer is ceaseless. He says here that I now pray before you day and night. The Apostle Paul exhorted the Thessalonian church to pray without ceasing. And the point here is not that Nehemiah is just going to keep praying and praying and never do anything. It was that he was wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, devoted to bringing this matter before the Lord. Night and day. His prayer involves confession. Nehemiah comes before God on behalf of an undeserving, disqualified people asking God to hear him. He comes confessing his own sins and he names, I'm sorry, and the sins of Israel. Confession is right and appropriate as we come before the Lord. It's one of the things we do regularly in our services because when we are confronted with the the word of the Lord, and the holiness of the Lord, our first reaction is seeing how far short we fall of all of His standards. Even those of us who are in Christ still fall way short of His standards. And we're confronted by His Word and we're confronted by His character and say, I I can't meet these standards. I have not yet met these standards. I long to, but I have not. And so confession is appropriate for those who fall short of the glory of God. And here Nehemiah names their sins. They've acted corruptly. They've not kept the commandments, statutes, and rules that God gave Moses. Which, covenant, well, which commandments did they break? All of them. Very good. They did. They broke every single one of them. They were guilty of breaking The whole law. I want to make sure you understand completely at this point. We are not under the law of Moses in the same way that the Israelites were at this time. Praise the Lord that we are not under the law of Moses in the same way. The law was a guardian. The law was meant to lead the people to Christ. The law is meant to show us our need for Christ. The law exposes us for what we really are. I'm going to give you a little spoiler, but I do want you to still come back for the rest of the EMI, even though I tell you this. These people are going to repent, and then they're going to repent of their repentance very quickly. Because by the works of the law, nobody will be saved. The law exposes us for what we really are, wayward sinners and glory thieves. Israel showed it time and time again. And we too, when confronted by the holy standards of God's law, apart from His grace, we are guilty. Guilty. 
That's the sentence on us. We hate the law. We disobey the law. We cannot obey the law apart from His grace. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We are under a new covenant. Not the Mosaic covenant. A new covenant. One that says that God will do what we could not and would not do. He will give us new hearts and new minds. He will put His Spirit within us. He will save us. We who believe pray in the name of Jesus because He is the only one by whom we can come to God. Our sins have been paid for by Him and we have been declared righteous clothed with the righteousness of Christ through faith in His perfect life. All the ways we fall short, just like these people right here, through His perfect life, we have been declared righteous. Through His sacrificial death, we have been declared forgiven. And through His victorious resurrection from the dead, we have been given the hope of eternal glory. When we come before God, we realize that though we are fully and unchangeably cleansed in in Him, in the courts of heaven, declared righteous, given an eternal hope that is secure. Rita said it in her prayer. Cannot be plucked out of His hand. It's all His work. When we come before this God, we realize that though we are those people, just like Nehemiah here, we still find in ourselves that we have fallen short of that standard. We are not what we are. Does that make sense? Praise God for His grace and mercy. He doesn't declare us righteous because of what we are. He declares us righteous because of what Christ is and who Christ is. But when we go before Him in prayer, we realize I'm still not what I am and what I want to be. Forgive me. We still fall short of our declaration. And so we confess and are reminded that in Christ, our sins are forgiven. Again, Nehemiah then appeals to God's faithfulness. He he appeals to God in verses 8 and 9. Remember your word. Remember your covenant. He quotes, verses 8 and 9 is a set of quotations from Leviticus 26. Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 28, and Deuteronomy 30. All these were a part of a covenant, uh, the covenant that God made with Moses and Israel before they entered the promised land. The promise that if they fell under the curse of the law, so this is way back, this is before they've ever gone in the promised land, God made a covenant with them. And of course, they all said, yes, we're going to do it. God gave them the law and He said, If you follow the law, here's the blessings. If you don't follow the law, here's the curses. One of the curses was, I'll scatter you people to the ends of the earth if you don't follow my law. And they said, no problem, we'll do it. We're in. They did not. And now they were suffering the curse of the law. They were scattered to the ends of the earth. But Nehemiah reminds God of the promise that he made, that he said, even there, Even if you've been scattered, not just to the ends of the earth, right? What's he say here? 
I, I, if you, I will scatter you. But if you return to me, verse 9, and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell. So Nehemiah is saying, remember God, remember what you said. And then he pleads on behalf of Israel. And he asks for forgiveness on behalf of Israel. We have no notification here that Israel itself was asking for this. But Nehemiah stands as the representative of Israel and says, would you hear me on behalf of them and answer this prayer and gather them again? Would you do that? And as I said a few minutes ago, these people, this repentance isn't going to last too long. And yet, we see, or we will see in this book, the Lord is going to honor this prayer and remember His covenant. He will do it because He is merciful. He will do it because these people are called by His name. He will do it for His glory. What glory God gets when He takes a group of wayward sinners and saves them and rescues them and brings them together. That's what we are here. The gathering of the redeemed. Great glory would be God's because of this. This work would show off God's great power and God's mighty hand in caring for those whom He had redeemed. And it would be a reminder that He is faithful. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how good is it to know that the Lord who made a covenant with us by the indwelling Holy Spirit will not change His mind. Nehemiah's prayer ends with another appeal to be heard. Verses 10 and 11 remind me so much of the work of Jesus as Nehemiah begs God to hear his prayer for his people. Nehemiah intercedes before the Lord and before the king of Persia next week on behalf of his people whom God had redeemed. Nehemiah's prayer before God is, forgive us, overlook our sin, and help us because of your great power and mercy. Jesus' prayer is, forgive them, cancel their sin, count them as righteous, and help them because of my work for them. The last part of Nehemiah's response that we see here, very briefly. So we saw brokenheartedness, fasting and prayer, and now we see in verse 11, resolve. The last part of Nehemiah's prayer says, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who is this man? The king, Artaxerxes. The last sentence explains it. Now, it feels like it's a weird spot, right? Like, hey, I just prayed this prayer. I just want to tell you I'm the cupbearer to the king. It makes perfect sense. Nehemiah puts, now I was cupbearer to the king in that spot, or the writer of Nehemiah puts it in that spot to make, make something clear. 
Nehemiah was in a position of prominence, trust, and access to the king. A position that one would want to hold on to. A position of honor. Esther, Daniel, and Nehemiah serve as examples of faithful Jewish people who rose to prominent positions while the Jewish people were in exile. But when called to faithfulness to God, they had to use those prominent positions as opportunities to glorify Him. They had to be willing to lose their status. Does Nehemiah know, hey, I'm going to go to Artaxerxes and I'm going to ask him for some stuff or I'm going to tell him about the plight of my people and he's just going to be so sympathetic and he's going to give me whatever I want and we're going to go rebuild that wall. Does he know that? When Esther goes before King Ahasuerosh, does she know, like, everything's going to be fine. This is going to work out great. When Daniel continues to pray after the edict is handed down by King Darius, does he think like, well, it'll probably work out fine? They have no way of knowing this. But when, faithful, when called to faithfulness in God, they had to use those prominent positions to glorify His name. They had to be willing to lose their status, lose their freedom, and possibly even lose their lives if that's what faithfulness to God and the good of Israel required. Nehemiah would go to the king and plead for his people. Chapter 1 leaves us wondering, did the Lord hear? Does the Lord hear this prayer? Would God act on behalf of his people? And it leaves those of us gathered here on the other side of the empty, empty tomb, the cross and the empty tomb, rejoicing that a much more prominent one left his glorious position to journey and to be with us, to bear our shame, to face our troubles, and to stand in the gap between God and us, granting us the security, removing our shame, and giving us the hope that we so desperately needed and so little deserved. Praise the, praise the Lord for His intercessory work. Let's pray. Thank You, Father, for Your mercy and grace. Thank You for the life and example of Nehemiah and the example of him coming to You, knowing that all he would have would come from Your hand. All success or failure would be by Your power. Thank you that he shows an example of standing in the gap for his people. And we thank you that we see in Jesus the fulfillment of this, that he intercedes on our behalf. May our trust be in Christ and Christ alone. In all the ways that we have fallen short of what we ought to be, Lord, forgive us. And thank you for the cleansing blood and righteous life of Jesus Christ, which is our hope. We pray all this in His name. Amen.